it's always exciting to begin a worship service by uh, obeying the Lord and being able to baptize someone. So we're so thankful to be able to do that this morning. And so just a quick word about baptism, what it is and what it's not. Baptism is an opportunity for someone who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus to go public with their faith, to let everybody know what's already happened inside their heart. And that's key, what's already happened, because baptism is not making someone right with God. It's not cleansing somebody of their sin. It's not putting faith into them. Baptism is showing that God, by His Holy Spirit, has already made you alive in Christ. He's caused you to be born again. He's shown you that you're a sinner and that you want to turn from your sin and you want to begin to follow Jesus. And baptism is just coming and showing that publicly to everybody else. And so we're commanded to do so. It's not an option. And we believe when we look at the Bible that believer's baptism is most biblical when it takes place by immersion. Because when somebody's up here in these baptismal waters and they stand here, they're standing before God and for all of you to say, look, I admit what Scripture says. I have died with Christ I, I, because I'm a sinner. Because I'm a sinner, Jesus had to die. And I admit before you that I have sinned against God and I deserve His judgment. But Christ died on the cross for me and by faith, my life is now hidden in Christ. And because of that, the old me is dead. It died on the cross with, with Jesus. And the old me not only died, but is buried with Jesus. And so when a person goes under the water, it's a picture of how they've been buried with Christ. And when they come up out of the water, it's a picture of a person that's raised again. It's a picture of the resurrection. So this person is standing before all of you and saying, look, the old me is dead and buried with Christ, and by faith in Christ, I'm a new person in Christ. So this morning, Kate Fowler has come to express that before us this morning. Kate, come on down here. Can y'all see her okay? Do I need to put her up on a stool? You see her all right, Dad? Okay. She needs to go up? All right. Hold on, Kate. We didn't think about this. Let me scoop this stool over here. You're going to grow about a foot. How's that? <laughs> all right. Very good. Okay. I need to go back this way. Oh, my goodness. Hold on. i got to get wet now. I wasn't supposed to be the one getting baptized. Ah, that water's getting warm, though. Okay. Stand this way, Kate, for just a moment. Everybody see how pretty you are. Now, this is Kate Fowler. And I don't know how many times in the last couple years that Kate's come up to me wanting to talk about being baptized and about salvation, but several times, right? And... Uh, and so we've talked, and almost every single time she's given the exactly exact right answer. So why didn't we baptize her right away? Because it's not knowing the right answer up here that makes you right with God. It's being sure that it's taking place in somebody's heart, and the evidence is, is a fruit in someone's life. And we want to be especially careful when somebody's young. So in those conversations, after having talked with her parents, she's went and talked with them several times, and we've talked again. And, and uh, so the time has come now where... Her parents are confident. Uh, I've been confident for a while now that, that God's, God's truly has uh, granted her faith and repentance. And they're seeing that evidence of that in her life. And, and uh, so praise God for that. Uh, praise God for a church family that's poured into her. I was talking with some, some couple back here this morning. One of them has taught Kate in uh, Sunday school. One of them has taught her in Bible drill. And so as a church family, we all get to rejoice together in playing, in playing some role and uh, being the means through which Kate's come to understand the gospel. And so, Kate, I just want to ask you before all these folks, do you, do you admit that you've sinned against God? Yes. Do you believe you deserve God's judgment for your sin? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son who 
paid the penalty for your sin on the cross? Yes. Okay. Do you want to turn from your sin and follow Jesus Christ all the days of your life? Yes. Amen. Let's turn around like this. Okay. Based on your profession of faith in Jesus, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people say amen. Amen. Now there's plenty of water in the baptistry, but the first thing that needs to take place in your heart if it's not already is you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in Him. And if you've already done that, but you've never been biblically baptized, then you're commanded to do so. It's not an option. Uh, so what are you waiting for? We would love to talk with you about baptism or about your own relationship with Jesus even more so. So do so right as God leads. I'm going to turn the service back over to Mr. Tim here. Right as you stand, let's go ahead and... I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to... The Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please take a Bible underneath the chair that's close to you and sitting in front of you uh, and turn with me to Matthew 21. I'd ask you to stand with me as we honor God's holy word and read it together this morning. Matthew chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? Verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. 
and the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray again. God, thank you for giving us the Bible. And thank you for letting us meet in a place where it can be publicly read and preached. God, we would ask also that you would give us grace right now to, to listen to it and not let our minds go to other places. And, but not only to be attentive to it, but Lord, that through that, that your spirit might stir our hearts that we might know the hope of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory for those that are believers. Lord, that we might grow in faith. God, be gracious and work. Lord, do what only you can do and cause faith and repentance among those who are unbelievers amongst us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen can be seated. I'm not sure if it was in our nursery or not, but I've heard uh, in some nurseries and some churches there's a Bible verse that's written outside the nursery wall or inside the nursery room itself that says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> well, certainly that's true. And we shall not all sleep. One day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and we shall not all our bodies remain in the tomb, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And certainly it's true for babies in the nursery that they're not all going to sleep, and most of them's going to need changing at some point or another as well. But you know, there's some other sounds of theology that come from the nursery. And I say that because when we look at this passage of Scripture, we see a scene here in the temple in verse 15. Did you notice it? After the things have taken place and Jesus rides the familiar ride onto a donkey into Jerusalem and goes into the temple and cleans out the money changers and runs them off and turns over tables. The response of the Pharisees after having the scribes and so forth, the religious leaders after having seen Jesus heal people in the temple and hearing children saying, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, they're saying, Hosanna, this is the Messiah. This is the king. When they heard that, they were indignant. They were upset. So the question I have for us as we begin looking at this passage of Scripture this morning is, why are the children, in verse 15, for what reasons are infants and nursing babes, as Jesus quotes from Psalm 8, why are these children, who may have not been necessarily infants or babes, why are these children praising Jesus in the temple? Well, I think to understand that, we have to go back and see that they're not just caught up in the hype, that they're not just mimicking their parents, that there actually are reasons these children are connecting the dots and therefore saying, Hosanna, salvation has come. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so 
when we come to Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem was sort of uh, a gradual incline. And so if you step back and you just think for a moment about what that scene may have looked like when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He had told the disciples earlier again, we're on our way to Jerusalem and the Son of Man's going to be betrayed, he's going to be delivered over, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be scourged, and on the third day arise again. And he said this before. So now they're on their way to Jerusalem. And one account of the gospel says the disciples were amazed and, and they were also fearful at the same time because they knew a, a way to Jerusalem. Do you see the disciples with Jesus in a crowd as well. And as they approach Jerusalem, no doubt, word is spread that the one who's been doing the miracles in Galilee and outside Galilee, this one, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. This prophet from Nazareth is coming. Let's go see him. So from the, his, from the hillside, from the distance, we're observing now. We look down upon the road and there is a crowd of people. There's a commotion. There's excitement. There's more people coming. Well, what in the world's going on? There's a man. And there's a man riding a donkey. Why in the world is... Why are they so excited about a man riding a donkey? They're, they're gathering palm branches. They're laying palm branches on the ground like he's some kind of royalty or something. Why in the world are they doing that? The crowd's getting louder. Listen to what they're saying. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This crowd is ecstatic. And when we look at verse 5, we see that when Jesus had told the disciples ahead of time, go into Bethphage and you'll find a donkey. And a colt tied up. You bring that colt because this is to fulfill Scripture. Now look at your Bible in verse 4. For this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, you looking at your Bible? Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill. Jesus was, remember all the secrecy up to this point? How many times Jesus says after he heals people, he says, now don't tell anybody. And they go ahead and tell people anyway. Don't tell anybody. His time has not yet come. But now... There's no secrecy, right? Now, there's been a, a change in his public ministry. He's going all out. He's going to make it clear. He's saying, you go get a donkey that's tied up because he's God and he's omniscient and he knows all things. And you bring them to me and they'll let him come because they know that I'm the Lord. And I'm going to ride this donkey and it's to fulfill Scripture. It's to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9 which is quoted for us and shared with us in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king, your king, your Messiah, the promised one is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus is intentionally fulfilling scripture. He's going public. And so why? What is one reason later the children are in the temple praising God? Because no one fulfills the scripture like Jesus. Jesus is intensely riding the colt into Jerusalem. Well, now the crowds reach Jerusalem. Now he's going to the temple. He must be going to offer his sacrifice because after all, it's the festival. It's the time to offer the sacrifices. And so he's coming. 
And as we get closer, you can smell the smell. Smells like animals. Smells like a zoo. Go inside the outer courts of the temple and it looks like a zoo. Well, there's people cheating people out of money. There's this Jesus. He's acting like a madman. He was just gentle just now riding on a donkey. He don't look gentle now. He looks upset. Do you see his face? He's got a whip in his hands. He's running people out. He's turning over tables. He's running people off. Do you hear what he says? You people have made this house a prayer, a den of robbers, a den of thievery. No one fulfills the word of God like Jesus does. And no one has a zeal for the holiness of God like God, like Jesus does, because he's God. And he sees the desecration of the temple that was was there to remind people the holiness of God in the midst of his chosen people. And zeal for the Lord consumes him, and he does something about. Again, the children are praising God because they're seeing that no one fulfills the word of God like Jesus does riding a colt. No one has a zeal for the holiness of God manifested in him clearing the temple when no one else would do anything about it. Now he's going inside the temple and we see this gentle side again. It's not like he's two sides of him though. This is, this is who God is. God is gentle and humble and he is holy zealously holy and he will judge those who rebel against him and he is merciful verse 14 who's coming in you got unclean people coming into the temple they're not supposed to be there according to the old covenant they're not supposed to be there get them out of here is he going to run them off no because he is the law giver he has authority and not only does he have authority in giving the law he has authority to exercise mercy there's the blind people in there praising God that person come in crippled and he's jumping up and down praising God cause no one has authority to heal like Jesus so the children verse 15 children Pharisees, scribes, Jewish leaders see this taking place. They they see the wonderful things the Bible says that Jesus did. They see it. And they hear the praise of the children going on. And they're indignant about it. Why are the children praising? Because no one fulfills the word of God like Jesus. Nobody has a zeal for the holiness of God like Jesus. Nobody has authority to heal like Jesus. So... The message this morning is this. Here comes the king. Our king is coming again. Amen, church? What is a right response to the coming of the king? And you'll notice Jesus' response in verse 15, verse 16, is not to rebuke the children. In fact, he's saying they're doing exactly what they've been ordained to do, what they've been prepared to do, exactly what you should be doing. What is? Our king is coming. We know a whole lot more than the crowd on the day of Pentecost knew. A whole lot more. He's now not going to be executed on a cross. He's been raised from the dead. He's reigning in heaven. 
And for those of us that are saved, he's redeemed our souls. So the king is coming. A right response is to, number one, give him praise for the salvation he brings. Amen? Give him praise for the salvation he brings. That's what the children are doing. So he doesn't rebuke them. They're doing exactly. That is the right response to the coming of the king. And folks, even more so for us on this side of the cross. Amen? Because he's not coming to do a work for our souls. He's already done it. And when he comes again, he's coming so that we might receive the full benefits of the work that's already been accomplished. So they give him praise for the salvation he brings and even more so for us. So there's two extreme responses. Look at your Bible in verse 15. Two extreme responses to Jesus in verse 15. Polar opposite. Chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. That's an extreme response. As we see explained here in just a moment. In verse 16. There's some simple math going on here for these young'uns. Scene number one, Jesus riding on a donkey. Nobody fulfills the scripture like Jesus does. Scene number two, Jesus goes into the temple. Everybody else knew something was wrong in there, but nobody do about it, do anything about it. But no one has a zeal for the holiness of God like God, like Jesus. And then the children see him coming to the temple, healing the, healing the blind and, and causing the lame to walk. And the children see that. You just take scene number one, it's simple math. Scene number two, simple math. Scene number three, one plus one plus one equals Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. You take all that, add it together. The only response, appropriate response can be Hosanna. You know what the word Hosanna means? It means salvation has come. That's what they're saying. So they add all it up. They look all around. And even children have enough sense to be able to add up the specific revelation being given in those moments and say, no duh, salvation has come. How extreme is their response? Look at verse 16. You're looking at your Bible. They said to him, Remember, the religious leaders were indignant. Verse 16 says, And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? They're saying you're the Messiah. They're saying you're the King. And you're just okay with that, Jesus? Jesus is not only okay with them calling him King, you're going to see in this verse, he's okay with them proclaiming that he is God. Look at what he says. Jesus said to them, yep, I heard them. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. A psalm of praise to God. And it says in Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, O Lord our Lord, you know this verse, some of you, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? It's a psalm of praise to the Lord. You, Lord, have set your glory above the heavens. Moon, stars, created things. Look at what God, the general revelation, you should add it all up and say, 
Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth. Your glory is above the heavens. That's, what, that's the appropriate response to the general revelation that we see about God and creation. And Jesus says, when they praise me that way, they're right to do so. In fact, their praise is extreme in the sense that they're not only praising me because I'm the messianic one, the Messiah, the promised one. They're praising me because I'm the one that created them. He is God. He is taking Psalm 8 and applying it to himself. Now I want you to think for a moment. Think about Matthew's audience. When this book, Matthew, Matthew's gospel was written after these things had taken place. It was written during a time when the Romans... Remember, Jesus is coming. Jesus is king. Hosanna in the highest. And later on, maybe you weren't allowed then, but, and maybe you were. But you're reading this kind of in the first century, and you're reading this, and, and you're reading about how this happened, and the king has come, but the Romans are still ruling. And there's still a lot of blind people out here, and a lot of people cripple, and maybe you're one of them. And by the way, you're a... You're reading this and you're following this Jesus has been raised, raised again. You're a Christian, but just like he talks about, you're suffering because of it. So there's still sinning going on, there's still Romans ruling, and you're still suffering because of your faith in Jesus. It don't look like he's reigning as king. Things, in fact, were harder. That's why Jesus told them when he was still with them, in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe it is, Jesus said, they, they questioned Jesus why his disciples didn't fast. you remember that? He said, they don't need to fast right now. They fast when the bridegroom goes away. Because when the bridegroom is here, when the Messiah is here, when Jesus is here, there's no reason to be fasting. But when he goes away, and he's not here to do the things that we see him doing right now, but he still reigns from heaven and he's doing it, but, it's, but we don't see it with our physical eyes all the time. That's going to be the time to fast. This is a difficult time for these people who are reading this after these things have taken place. But yet their response is supposed to be to give him praise for the salvation that he's brought and that he is bringing. So fast while the bridegroom is away. But brothers and sisters, the bridegroom is coming back. Amen? He is coming back. Salvation is coming in its full appropriation and all that God has promised. So Paul writes, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Or we read in 1 Peter chapter 1 these promises. Though you have not seen him. This really helps us, don't it? You've not seen him with physical eyes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you love Jesus? You have not seen him, but you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Did you rejoice this morning as we sang the gospel together? As you're hearing the gospel taught in Sunday school, are you rejoicing, striving to anyway? And verse 9 says, as a result, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. We wait for the King to come so we might obtain the fullness of the salvation that He bought for us on the cross. The King is coming. We see Him coming in... Do do you see Him coming in full display? When He comes back, you know, He comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We see His justice in the temple, clearing clearing the temple, and we see Him humbly going to the cross and laying down His life and not... And, and laying down his life for the sheep. But do you see him coming again? Do you see him coming again? Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. He's not coming back on riding on a donkey. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see him coming again? It's good news. That's a terrifying passage of Scripture, but not for those who are believers, right? He's coming. Salvation is coming. The king is coming. And a right response is to give him praise even though the Romans are still ruling even though there's still cancer in your body, even though there's still strife in our marriages, even though there's broken hearts this morning and not seeing what we'd like to see happen in our lives, the appropriate response right now because he's coming is to give him praise at all times. remember being in St. Louis in October for a meeting about reaching Bosnians in North America and Rochelle Hembacher was there and Rochelle's the, the uh, widow now of Jason Hembacher, the pastor, same age as myself, in St. Louis that's preached here for us and we've partnered with, who got up one morning or one evening uh, with his family. His son was home and his wife and, and uh, said something didn't feel right and he got up and he hit the ground and was dead before he hit the ground. That's just a few months ago when Rochelle was there in St. Louis and playing the role that her husband would normally play to keep that ministry going. She's not pastoring the church or anything, but in other, other facets of that she's leading. And, and uh, she, the next morning as part of this conference, Rochelle got up to lead worship. And I've been in Bosnia with Rochelle and Jason many times. I have saw them lead worship together and her husband wasn't with her this time. And I thought, man, how could she get up and lead worship this way with these others? And, uh, and she began leading one song that said your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips man I was was a basket case (laughs) I was a basket case watching my sister in Christ exhibit a right response even though there's brokenheartedness 
to the fact that the king is coming. And when the king comes, the Bible says in Revelation 22, there'll be leaves as for healing of the nations and there'll be no more curse. No more of that stuff. He's coming in all his divine attributes. Do you see him coming? The king is coming in full display, not gentle riding humbly on a donkey, but on a white horse in full display of his divine attributes for his people. And a right response, no matter what's going on, is to give him praise. And folks, that's why we need to be in church every Sunday. That's why we need to be in fellowship all the time together because I'm not always thinking that way 24-7, are you? I'm thinking about what happened last night or how aggravated I am about this problem or what's going on over here. And I get all caught up in it and I need to be with my brothers and sisters to remind me by grace to encourage and exhort me so much the more as the day's drawing near when he comes that all these things that's on my mind are not worthy to compare to the glory that shall be revealed to us. So we come on Sunday mornings and we preach the gospel and we sing the gospel and we tell each other about the gospel so that we give a right response. We give him praise for the salvation he brings. This overflows in corporate worship. It overflows in our devotions with our kids. We give him praise and evangelism everywhere and every day. It should overflow that we're giving him praise for the salvation he brings. But secondly, the king is coming and a right response is not only giving praise for the salvation he brings, but repent of your spiritual barrenness. Repent of your spiritual barrenness. I said there were two extreme responses of verse 15. Look back at verse 15 with me in your Bible. Are you looking? Chapter 21, verse 15. You should already know it by now. One is the extreme response of the children saying, Hosanna. Extreme in the sense that Jesus says, their praise to me is appropriate because they're praising God. God. And it's, there's another extreme response. And the other extreme, the opposite extreme is what? What do, you look, what do you see there in your Bible? Rather than Hosanna, you got the religious leaders who should be leading the choir. They should be leading the choir to say, Hosanna, he's coming. And instead, they're indignant. They're upset about it. They wish it wasn't happening. They wish the kids would be quiet. Put them back in the nursery. So, go with me now outside Jerusalem. Next day, according to Matthew, as he arranges things topically, in the morning, verse 19, he's returning to the city. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He spent the night in Bethphage, but he's on his way back to Jerusalem. Here he comes back. What's he going to do today? Is he going to tell somebody off today? Who's he going to heal somebody today? Is today the day when he's going to get rid of the Romans and sit up on his throne? Here he comes. The disciples are with him. They still don't get it. And he looks over, and he's hungry because he's in his flesh. He's a man, fully man, fully God. There's a fig tree, and it's got leaves. And for all I understand about reading about fig trees, if they got leaves, they ought to be having figs, whether that's the time of year or not. So here's something that looks like it's giving, it ought to be producing fruit, 
but it's not. And so what's he do? What's your Bible say? Well, he curses it. He said to it, verse 19, the last sentence, and he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Then look what happened. The fig tree withered at once. So it all shriveled up. It went from giving the appearance of being fruitful, but not really bearing fruit, to being judged where it would never bear any fruit at all. This is a challenging because we think, what in the world? This seems like a pointless thing. It seems like Jesus is just upset about he's hungry, he's upset, there's no figs on the tree, and he's cursing a fig tree. What in the world is that about? Well, Jesus don't do anything pointless, <laughs> purposeless. He's teaching a lesson. He's teaching a parable through this. Hopefully we see it. You got just leaving the temple the day earlier, right? They're upset. The religious leaders, they ought to be leaving, leading praise for Jesus to come, are upset. The religious leaders who look on the outside like they should be bearing fruit, they got leaves. They got the outer lookings of some people who are devoted to God and to his Messiah. But they're not bearing any fruit. They're upset that he's coming. They can't connect the dots. They suppress this specific revelation just like people do in general revelation in Romans chapter 1. They suppress it, hold it down. And yet children can see it. And not only are they upset, indignant at the children praising God, They're supposed to care about the holiness of God. They say so on the outside, but there's been extortion going on in the temple, people selling animals, people having a flea market, people cheating people out of the money, and the holy people of God supposed to be leading God's people, acting like it on the outside, hadn't done a thing about it. And are probably acting, doing the same thing, probably engaged in that stuff. So you see? You see the context now? Now he comes outside the next day, looks at a fig tree and says, May you never bear fruit again. You look like you ought to be, you act like you're bearing fruit. You should be, but you're not. And it is a judgment upon religious hypocrisy, spiritual barrenness. A right response to the coming of the king is to praise him for the salvation he brings, and a right response is to repent of our spiritual depravity, our spiritual barrenness. If we're playing games, turn away from it. We've never turned to Christ. Repent and trust in Him. Don't play the church game. Believe in Jesus Christ. So now, as John Piper says about this text, now that the king, he's not come back on a white horse yet. Right? But he's coming. He could come today. But he's not here yet. Now is the time to switch sides, right? Now's the time to say, I'm in the domain of darkness. I'm spiritually bare. I may even act religious. I may even act like I love Jesus, but, but really my life's not bearing any fruit. Is If that's true about you, turn away from it now. You have time, right? He's coming, riding on, he's coming riding on a donkey, gentle and humble. It says in the next verse in Zechariah that he's going he's to uh, bring peace to the nations. That's what he was doing, bringing peace to the nations. 
He's bringing peace to you. But when he comes back, he's not bringing peace to the nations, folks. There's a sword in his mouth, which is metaphorical, I think, for his judgment that's coming upon the unbelievers. But not yet. What grace has been given to us this morning, right? Grace right now. To, to turn from our spiritual barrenness and trust in Christ. Oh, he's been so good to you. Oh, how many millions are in the world right now who have never heard any of this. And if he comes today, we'll perish forever, not because they never heard any of it, because they're sinners, just like I'm a sinner. Oh, God, help us. The king is coming, a right response is to give him praise for the salvation he brings and to repent of your spiritual barrenness. And thirdly, to have faith in God and persist in prayer. So in closing, he, he gives them a little lesson on prayer. When they ask him, the disciples are, are just awestruck about this fig tree. They're just, can you just see their mouths open like, how did you do that? They don't even ask really why, but they're just kind of awestruck about it. They marvel, how did the fig tree wither at once? How did you do it? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. So, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he restrains the exercise of his divine attributes. Restrains them. He doesn't mean he's emptied of them in the sense that he's not, he doesn't have those attributes anymore. Because sometimes he still lets us, he just sends out some reminders every once in a while of his ministry of who he is. Lazarus, come forth! Oh yeah, he's God. He's not just a prophet. Only God can make people come from the dead. Storm, peace, be still. And it ceases. Because God has power over nature. Demons, come out. And they come out. Don't throw us over the cliff. Let, let, let us go over to the pigs. You know, Don't send us to the abyss. Throw us over the cliff into the pigs. Because he's Lord. In just case we forgot. But he's fully man. And as being fully man, he must trust in God. He must trust in his Father. Just as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Or on, or on the cross. You know, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's, he's exercising a faith in the Father. And what we see about Jesus' ministry and the way he does things, no one, we see that no one has a, whole, a zeal for the holiness of God like Jesus. Nobody feels the word of God like Jesus. Nobody has authority to heal like Jesus. And nobody has faith in God like God, like the Son of God, like Jesus does. So when Jesus says, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be cast over into the sea. Jesus has a perfect faith. There's no wavering in his faith. So if he, if he wanted to say to a mountain, hey mountain, go jump in the sea over there, it's going to happen. Because in his humanity, in faith, he has the power of God, he is God, but in faith he relies upon God as a man. I know that blows our mind. It's supposed to because God's infinite and we're finite, right? Because if he has perfect faith, whatever he says and asks God to do, it's going to happen. 
Because he doesn't waver in his faith. So his perfect faith equals mountain-moving faith, drying up fig tree faith, healing the lame and the cripple and the blind faith, right? Anytime he asks God to do something or he says something that's going to happen, it's going to happen. The reason I preface things that way, not only because it's true, it's because of this. We look at these verses and we think, Okay, I'm praying, why don't I see things happening? I must be weak in faith, and probably that's true because none of us have a perfect faith. Our persevering faith, the faith that believes God can move mountains, our persevering faith that believes God can take a camel and shove it through the eye of a needle, right? Our persevering faith that believes God can save the lost and and heal your loved ones and renew your marriages. Our persevering faith shows up in persistent prayer. that's, That's really the application of these closing verses here. We believe He can do these things and we 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 And the evidence that we believe that he can move mountains or put camels through eyes of needles or whatever the situation in your life may be, the evidence of that is not necessarily in whether or not that happens because it may not be God's will that it happens. You just can't name it and claim it here. But the evidence that we have that kind of mountain-moving faith is we just keep on praying. You just keep on praying. You just keep persisting in prayer. You keep asking. You keep asking God to heal your marriage. You don't see it happening. You don't know what God's going to do. You want God to heal that person in your family with cancer and you keep asking and it's not happened. And you think, is it me? Is it because I have a weak faith? Well, you don't have a perfect faith. None of us do. But you, you need to have a persistent faith that just keeps asking. Just keep asking. Persist in prayer. That's a right response to the coming of the king. Is to know he reigns. He has all power. If you ask anything in Jesus' name, he will do it according to his will. You just keep asking. I love the old hymn, Have Faith in God When Your Prayers Are Unanswered. Your earnest plea he will never forget. Wait on the Lord, trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God, he'll answer yet. Have faith in God, he's on his throne. Have faith in God, he watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. <laughs> He will prevail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As every head's bowed and every eye closed, there's much to process in this passage of Scripture, but the most important thing for you to consider right in these moments is this. Have you turned from your spiritual barrenness and trusted in Jesus Christ? If the trumpet sounds at this moment and he comes riding on a white horse, will it be blessing for you or will it be cursing for you? Are you ready ready to meet the Lord your God? And friend, the only way you can be ready is by trusting only in Jesus Christ. Put it all on Jesus. Jesus paid it all, just like we sang this morning. Call out to him and say, oh God, I've sinned against you. I am sorry. I want to trust in Jesus. I want to follow him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, there are many heavy burdens here this morning where you're seeking to pray. 
You believe the king is coming. You want to see things happening in your life. And We didn't have a time of prayer at the front here this morning, but I'm just going to ask you if you'd like to during this time or if you want to come up here and pray, get down on your knees or come up here and say, Pastor, would you pray with me about this? I'd be glad to. But maybe we just need to have a little bit of a season of prayer together as a church family this morning, asking God to do what only he can do. Would you come and pray? Or would you come and say, Pastor Steve, I didn't come up here necessarily to pray. I come up here to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what that little girl did this morning in the baptistry. I need to be baptized. I want to talk to you about it. Will you come? Will you do what the Lord says to do? Coming up here ain't going to do nothing magical. We can talk after the service too, but hey, I don't know when he's coming. You might as well come now. So as the music's playing after I pray and we begin to stand and sing, if you want to come up here and get down on your knees and pray or you want to come up here and stand and pray or you want to pray right where you're at or you want to come and talk with me, you do what the Lord God says to do. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your work on the cross and I thank you for your son Jesus and I thank you for the hope of the resurrection and the promise of his return. I ask God that our hearts could be greatly stirred to continue to persist in prayer and to praise our King and to turn from spiritual barrenness and turn from temptations on a daily basis for those that are believers, Lord. God, help us, we pray, and move in now in this moment, these moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You join me here if you'd like to pray. Let's stand together. We'll sing otherwise. You come with God speaking.
God, He's on His throne. Have faith in God, He watches o'er His own. He cannot fail, He must prevail. Have faith in God, have faith in God, have faith in God, though all else fail about you. for his own he cannot fail though all kingdoms shall perish heroes he reigns upon his throne have faith in God he's on his throne have faith in God he watches o'er his own he cannot fail prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. I'll be standing at the back doors this morning and love a chance to chat with you for a moment and we can pray together or set up a time later to talk. But I want to plead with you. If, you, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I, I would turn to him, trust in him, do it today. Um, Ryan Horrell is one of our deacons. I think he's on call here to pray for us this morning, so he's going to come and pray. And You join us tonight at 6.30 for evening service, and, and uh, 5 o'clock will be Bible drill and youth activities at 6 tonight. So we'll look forward to those things, and, and uh, God is good. And so let's go out and go out of here and tell pe- people that he's coming and tell him why. All right? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for being so great, so wonderful. We thank you for Kate this morning and her obedience and in baptism, Lord. And we praise you for the changed life there. And we praise you for all the changed lives here in this church that you've worked through us and, and made us new. God, we pray that you continue to do so and that we would go out into this world that so desperately needs you and be bold in sharing our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel.
The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel is the account of God writing Himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, He lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.